Uh, if you don't recognize me, my name is Mikey, and I'm the director of the kids' ministry here at Emmanuel. And it is my pleasure to continue our summer series, Summer in the Psalms. So if you guys have a Bible with you, uh, or if you want to borrow one, we've got some here for you. But we're going to be looking at Psalm 51 today. So I'll give you guys a minute to kind of turn there, if you'd like. And as you're doing that, let us pray before we read God's Word. Please join me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day that we can gather and we can be in your presence. So Lord, as we look at your words, as we look through the book of Psalms, a Psalm of David, Lord, we ask that you would prepare our hearts to hear what we need to hear today. Father, we pray that uh, the soil of our hearts would be soft and able to receive that which you want to plant. Lord, we desire for your kingdom to grow here in Abbotsford as it is in heaven. And Lord, we desire for your kingship to grow in our hearts as well. So Lord, as we examine ourselves today and as, as we self-reflect, may your Holy Spirit lead us to truth, which will lead us to freedom, freedom from sin. And so Lord, we thank you for your great mercy. We thank you for your grace, which is sufficient. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said... Amen. So again, thank you for, for joining us this morning online and here at Emmanuel Church. So Psalm 51 was written by David. And uh, before we get into the broader context of that, it's not very long. So why don't we just start by reading it together? So verse 1 begins like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me away from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, and let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity." Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You are the God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. 
Now, according to the title of this psalm, David composed this psalm because the prophet Nathan had confronted him about his sins. If you're not familiar with the backstory, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he also arranged for the murder of her husband Uriah. It is from this psalm that we get the old song, Creating Me a Queen Heart, O God. And today, we want to explore what it means to have a queen heart. A queen heart is one that owns up to their sin. So what does it mean to own up to your sin? So the first couple of verses here, let's look at verses 1 and 2. David begins this psalm with an appeal to God, appeal to God's mercy. And he bases this appeal to mercy on the character of God, that is, who God revealed himself to be. He's referring to God's unfailing love and great compassion. And this is exactly what God told Moses in the book of Exodus chapter 34. Now at that time, Moses had gone up to Mount Sinai early in the morning. And as the Lord commanded him, he had kind of crouched behind a rock and hidden himself because he couldn't see God directly. And then the Lord came down in a cloud and he stood there and with him he proclaimed his name. And this is what God proclaimed. As he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. This is who God says he is. This is God proclaiming his name. And his name is a God who is compassionate a God who is gracious, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love. This is who God has revealed himself to be. And so David is making a plea to God to have mercy on him, not because David feels like he deserves it, that he has somehow earned God's mercy, but because it would be in agreement with God's character. In other words, David is saying, God, be who you have said you are, who you were and who you will continue to be. God, have mercy on me because you are compassionate and gracious, and this would be in agreement with your character. David's plea is also a humble one. He is asking God to show him grace and kindness because his sin has shown his need for God's forgiveness. He also asks God to wash away all his iniquity and cleanse him from his sin. So iniquity is a pretty fancy word. It's not something that we use a lot today. But poetically, David is talking about his sin. He wants to be washed and cleansed from his sin. And the idea of washing and cleansing of sin comes from the old ceremonial rites of the Old Testament. And don't worry, we're not going to go through Leviticus and go through all the different ceremonial washing rites for all the different things that we had to do back in those days. However, this is the image that you should have in your mind when you're reading this psalm. The cleansing and the washing are these ceremonial rites that the Jewish people had to follow to fulfill the Old Testament law. These practices required by the Old Testament law allowed someone to safely come into the presence of the Lord. There were different rules and regulations regarding the worship in the tabernacle and later in the temple And you had to be what was called ceremonial clean before you could safely enter into the presence of God. Now, the idea of safely entering the presence of God reminds me of the Chronicles of Narnia. 
Have any of you guys read that book before? Or a series of books? Yes. And at one point, the Pevensey kids are asking Mr. Beaver, and they're talking about Aswan. If you don't know who Aswan is, he, he is a lion in this, and it's an allegory for Jesus Christ. And the kids ask at Mr. Beaver, is Aswan, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver's like, oh no. He's not safe, but he's good. And I think that's a beautiful picture we have of our God, a powerful God, right? One in which we must approach his presence knowing that we need to do so safely with his grace and mercy. But we also trust and understand that this God is good. And in doing these things also leads to our good as well. So these ceremonial rites were required for someone to be considered clean. In this case, David is not asking God to bathe him literally with water and soap, right? He's not asking God to wash him with a detergent, if you will. We can't simply just wash our sins away that easily. In fact, David is owning up to his sin and recognizing his need to be forgiven. And these ceremonial washings that were required in the Old Testament, they pointed to the inner reality of a sinful heart, which David is focusing on. At this point, David is doing what's called confession. Now, often when we think of confession, some of our minds kind of race back to those old confessional booths, right? And those mainline Catholic or Anglican, if you will, right? Where you get to sit in a little booth and there's a priest next to you on the other side. And you sit down and you say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. It's been three months since my last confession. Now, that's not something we find here at Emmanuel. But the idea of confession is a biblical idea. And it's taking ownership of one's mistakes. And that can be hard in today's day and age. It's not easy for us to own up to our own mistakes, whether it's to ourselves, to our children, to our friends and neighbors, or even to God himself, realizing, you know what, I've messed up. I've made a mistake. The word confession, if you put it very simply, is to tell the truth. If you guys have ever seen like those detective shows where they bring in the perp and they sit him down at the table and they're like, all right, we need to get a confession out of him. Okay, we'll put the light on him. You say, Bobby, did you kill Jimmy? And Bobby's like, yeah, yeah, I did it. I killed Jimmy. I did it with the knife and now he's swimming with the fishes. Sometimes that's kind of the ideas we have about confession. But it's simply about telling the truth. In our church, we have a baptismal here where people give confessions of their faith. And in that way, they're not confessing to a crime, but they are confessing the truth of who they believe Jesus is. And so when we think about confession and confessing our sins, we are telling the truth, but not just about our sin, but about who God is and what God can do about that sin. We are often told that we should live with no regrets, right? That's a very popular phrase. Some people even get it tattooed on them, no regrets. And hopefully they get it spelled right. It doesn't say no regrets, right? And that is a popular sentiment because we feel like the way to happiness in life in this world can be not owning up to your mistakes, right? Recognizing that who you are, everything's okay, I don't need to change. But that's not what David is pointing us to here in this passage. Now, I agree we shouldn't dwell on our past mistakes in an unhealthy way. We shouldn't be living under a guilt that crushes us. But we should be capable of self-reflection, and we should be capable of self-awareness that leads to recognizing our mistakes and learning from these experiences. 
That's what it means to take ownership of one's sins, is to recognize through self-reflection and through self-awareness that something has happened, and this is an experience that I can learn from. Now let's take that a step further. Do we allow ourselves to feel guilt? Do we allow ourselves to feel regret for our sins? Do we own up to our sins in this way? For David states, For I know my transgressions and my sin are ever before me. He is very aware of what he has done. He is keenly aware that this sin is his fault and not anyone else's, and that God is free from all blame. In other words, we should feel remorse and we should feel sorrow for our sins. In fact, I would say we should even feel shame. Now, shame is a tricky thing. In our Western culture, we have shame and honor, but not like it is in other cultures. And sometimes shame can be used to harm other people. And that's not the kind of shame I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the shame of your breath stinks or the shame of, you know, my toenails are too long or I I have a hole in my jeans, right? Because culture has a function for shame. And that function is to show the individuals in a society that their behavior or their attitudes is unacceptable to the society in which they're in. But sometimes people take that too far and they get shame for things that are not morally wrong. But what I'm talking about here is the shame that comes from sin. David committed adultery. That's no light sin. Should he be ashamed? Absolutely. David conspired to commit murder for his own personal gain. Should he be ashamed of that? Yes, a resounding yes. But if we ignore the shame of our sin, if we hide it, if we bury it down below, something terrible happens. Shame can be like a fungus. It can be like a mold or a mildew because it loves to grow in dark places. Dank places. Think of a cave dripping with water, with darkness and dampness and dim. As often where we like to put our mistakes, to put our shame and hide them away. Now don't get me wrong, I love a good fungus. I love mushrooms on my pizza. Mushrooms are great. Pineapple, not so much. But you know what fungus hates? It hates the light. And that's exactly what we should do with our shame from our sin, is that we should bring it to the light. Because if we ignore it, it will continue to grow in that dark place. If we hide our shame away, it will only grow in secret. But let us self-reflect. Let us bring the shame of these mistakes out into the light and let us examine them. Let us examine them according to God's word. If we say, okay, this has been my attitude, this has been my actions. When I examine it against God's word, is it sin? And if it is, own up to it. Recognize that that feeling of shame is drawing you to God's word for self-examination, to look at the heart. If we find that according to God's word, we have sin, we should own up to that. But let us not stay there in shame. Let us move on to guilt. Guilt also has a function as well. 
If we never move from shame to guilt, we never take responsibility for our sins. If we don't move from shame to guilt, we won't take responsibility for our mistakes. Guilt is taking ownership of your mistakes. And without that, we cannot learn to change. If we never take ownership for those sins, how can we reach the spiritual transformation that we desire? God does not desire for us to wallow in our guilt and shame. Now, God would be fully justified in refusing David's request. He says, have mercy, me on go- have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Now, God could just refuse that request, and that too would also be in his character. Our God is good, and our God is great, but he is also a just and righteous God. The image of God refusing grace and mercy is a troubling image. It can be hard for us to understand that. But perhaps our discomfort doesn't come from, from God himself, but maybe it just comes from a misunderstanding of these words, grace and mercy. Now, when I teach kids about grace, I define it as getting what you don't deserve. In other words, God's grace is when we receive something, something good that we didn't earn. And in that way, it is grace. So we define mercy as not getting what you do deserve. In other words, that would be not getting the punishment, the consequences that you have earned from your sin. And any time we talk about being entitled to someone's grace and mercy, we're no longer talking about grace and mercy. The Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death. If we want to talk about what we've earned, if we want to talk about what we deserve, those are the things that we deserve. God's grace is getting what we don't deserve. And his mercy is not receiving the punishment that we do deserve. And so David is making this appeal to God's grace and mercy, fully understanding that he does not deserve it. And it is wholly upon God's character and God's will to give it to him. David recognizes that God is the ultimate judge for sin. And our sin is the evil that we do in his sight. Now let's be clear. David committing murder and adultery is hardly a victimless crime. There were huge collateral damage going on. But at the end of the day, it is before God that we are judged for our sins. In fact, the consequences for David's sin is in addition to his treason to God. Not only was he rebelling against God in his heart, but lives were destroyed. Marriages were destroyed. Terrible things happened when David followed the sin of his heart. For our bodies belong to God, and our neighbor is also made in God's image. And in these ways, as David sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, he also sinned against God. Now, David finds no fault in God's judgment against his sin. He says, you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David is often mentioned as a hero in biblical stories. And coming from kids' ministry, You know, we have all kinds of things about the heroes of the Bible, right? 
But in this psalm, we see David's self-reflection and self-awareness of his own nature. And he sees that his sin is not an anomaly of an otherwise pristine character and behavior. We often like to put a lot of these biblical characters up on a pedestal, right? He realizes that his crimes are consistent with his sinful nature that has been with him since birth. Look at verse 5 of Psalm 51. It says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We all have a sinful nature that's with us since birth. Now, David is not blaming his mother for his sin. And he is not suggesting that the act of conception itself is sinful. And David is also not using his sinful nature as an excuse for his crimes either. He is owning up to his sin and taking responsibility for them because he recognizes that he is morally accountable to God and that he has a sinful nature, he has a problem, and he is in need of a solution for this. So David also prays for restoration. When we look at verses 7 through 9, he brings up an image for us to ponder. He says, In light of his confession, David asks God to restore him, and he requests to be cleansed with hyssop. So hyssop is a plant. It's like a hairy, uh, bushy plant that has uh, very fragrant flowers on it. And it's very good for tying up into a bundle. And they had a couple of different ceremonial rites for using the hyssop plant. But one of the most notable ceremonial rites for using the hyssop plant was for the cleansing of a leper. Now, lepers are people, not animals. I didn't say leopard. Oftentimes, kids will get that a little bit confused. But leprosy is a skin disease. And in the Old Testament, to have leprosy was to be considered unclean. You couldn't be near other people. You had to be outside the camp. And you had to be ceremonial clean before you could come into the camp, before you could worship the Lord. So David says, cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. David is asking God like a priest, to cleanse him from his defilement. He is asking God to purge the sin from within him. If the priest was satisfied with the unclean person and that they had met the requirements of the ritual purification, they would take the hyssop and they would sprinkle the person with water. And then the priest would declare the person to be clean. This is the image that David is giving us. He's asking God to cleanse him to purify him, and not only that, but to declare him clean. Notice that David says he would be whiter than snow as a result of his cleansing. Which white, the color white is identified with purity, but it's also identified with joy as well. Dark colors, especially black, are used to represent mourning, which are associated with states of impurity. And it's still a common thing for us today when we go to a funeral or a memorial is to wear black as well to signify our mourning. But the white as snow is an image of purity, but is also an image of joy. Now this prayer for restoration, which leads to a purification or a purging of sin, so that David can once again have joy and gladness, This is what David is is seeking. He wants to be in the presence of the Lord so that he can have joy and gladness again. 
But in order to do that, he must own up to his sin, and he asks God to cleanse him of his sin. David yearns for God's presence and to be in relationship with his creator. His shame and guilt has crushed him. In fact, it talks about the crushing of bones. That's the feeling that David has. is deep. To his bones he feels crushed. But he desires for those bones to dance again, to have joy in the presence of the Lord. And so he asks God to do some new work in David. So let's look at verses 10 to 12, and it talks about this inward renewal. Now, David gets to the heart of the matter. He asks God to create in me a pure heart. He is asking God to perform a miracle. That is a work that only God can do. He asks God to renew a steadfast spirit in me. These are the words of repentance. These are the words of a heart turning away from sin and turning towards God. This is an attitude that leads to spiritual transformation and renewal. The antidote to temptation, the temptation to sin, is a willing spirit, a spirit that is willing to do God's will. Created me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit in me, a willing spirit, one that is willing to do God's will. Now, what does David say God's will is? Let us highlight a couple of verses. It says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. What David is emphasizing is that the best gifts that we can bring to God, they mean absolutely nothing without a contrite heart. You could bring the most precious offerings, and in these days, David is talking about animal sacrifices, prized bulls and lambs with no blemishes, things that were of great value, grain offerings, all of these things. You can lay them on the altar of God, and they mean nothing to him without a broken and contrite heart. A contrite heart is one that is remorseful. It is humble. It is repentant. These are the things God will not despise. Often we are told to admit your mistakes as as a sign of weakness. That's not true. Biblically speaking, this is what God desires. A pure heart, a clean heart, One that is turned towards the Lord is one that can admit its brokenness, its neediness for the Lord. This is the heart that God desires because that is the heart that he will take and make clean and make new. Confession can be very difficult. It requires you to dig down deep, to open up the book, to look between the pages, to read between the lines. To bring those things out of secret that you have held for a long time. And bring them before the Lord and say, forgive me. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. But we have a promise in scripture in 1 John. Chapter 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful 
and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that is a beautiful promise. We can trust that God is faithful and just. We can trust that he will forgive our sins and purify us from our unrighteousness. But we have to confess our sins. We have to own up to our sin. Don't keep your shame in the dark and let it grow. But come to the Lord. Admit your guilt. Because God does not desire for us to hold on to that guilt. In fact, we can cast it upon the cross. We can come to Jesus because Jesus has paid it all. He has paid the price for our sins so that we don't have to hold on to that guilt. The reason that we can have a clean heart, the reason that we can have a new heart, in light of the New Testament, the Holy Spirit can come and bring spiritual life, spiritual transformation and renewal. We can be a new creation, not just our heart, but our minds and our spirits, the whole of us. If we come to the cross and offer all that we are to God, he will take it and he will make something new. And there will be joy and gladness and praising again. We don't have to stay in the darkness, but we can come to the light because God is faithful and just and forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so today we're going to take communion. And in light of this passage, we know that we have a Savior who has paid it all in both his body and his blood. We no longer have to keep those ceremonial rites of washing. None of us have to come before the table and be sprinkled with hyssop before we can take the bread and the wine. But there is one thing that the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. He says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What Paul is essentially asking us to do is to do a heart check before communion. Now, as a kid, there was a saying that we used to say to ourselves. We said, check yourself before you wreck yourself. So do a heart check today. How are your things between you and the Lord? Is there anything that you're holding back? Because you can bring everything to him. Even David, who committed adultery and murder, could come to the Lord and confess his sins. And he trusted that God would, his unfailing love, and according to his great compassion, would blot out those transgressions. And we know that that is true because we have Jesus' sacrifice that has paid it all. And so when we examine these elements today, his body and blood, we can trust that God will forgive those sins that we confess to him because he is just and righteous and he has paid the price. The wages of sin is death and Jesus has done the work that we couldn't do. He has paid that price. So let me pray before we start the distribution of elements. So please join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, in light of your son Jesus and in light of his offering, Lord, we come before you. We come before you with a contrite heart. We come before you with a broken spirit, Lord. God, you know that you will not despise us, that you will not shame us in this position. But Lord, we can come before you on our knees and we can confess our sins and that you will forgive us. And Lord, we know that we are 
forgiven because we know that Jesus has paid the price. We know that we don't have a future that is dim. We know that we have a future that is bright and full of light because your son has paid the price for us to be in your presence. We know that we can approach you safely through Jesus. He is the one mediator between us and you. And we know, Lord, that you will accept our offerings because you yourself have made an offering before us. That is your body and your blood so that we could come to you and worship. So, Lord, help us to do a heart check today. Help us to approach your table with a clean heart so that we can worship you with joy and gladness. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.